Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're continuing in our sermon series, Q&A, the questions that God asks us, and God asks a question of Jacob, what is your name? I don't get to do this very often. Uh, Some of you know that uh, my chief hobby is art history. I love art history. And so I thought I'd do a little art criticism today. Some of you may know this painting. It's helpful for us. This is called Vision After the Sermon. It's by Paul Gauguin. It's from 1888. It resides in the National Gallery of Scotland. The, The content of this, if you can't tell, is Genesis 32. You can see up in the corner over here, Jacob is wrestling with an angel. An angel has Jacob in a headlock, you can see. In the foreground, you see 12 Breton women. Uh, 12, a significant biblical number, obviously. Uh, Gauguin was painting this in the area of Brittany in France, and he became fascinated with the religious fervor of the people in that area. You can also see, maybe it's hard to see, but in the top right corner, you have the banks of a river, the River Jabbok, and you have a large tree in the middle. That's the tree of life and death, the tree of good and evil. From a composition standpoint, it's a pretty fascinating painting. It was actually one of the earliest paintings, forerunners of modern abstraction, because you have this massive field of red. It's not super bright on this projector. But if you saw it in person, the bright red would just pop out at you. He was was influenced greatly by Japanese prints, a flat depiction of a seascape or a forest or a tree that tells a story. And compositionally, he has this tree that divides the foreground from the background, that divides these women from the biblical story, this division of death and life, almost as if it's a separation between real life and the spiritual life. And I find the foreground of these women to be staggering because they're so large in comparison to the biblical scene that's going on. And I ask the question, as I look at this painting, where am I supposed to be in this painting? Am I joining with these women? Am I looking over them to the biblical scene beyond? I love this painting. I think it's a great visual of our text in Genesis 32, and we'll come back to it. I'll admit to you that this story from Genesis 32 is one of my favorites in Scripture. The more I study it, the richer it becomes. And I'm thankful for Jacob because he is someone who is so thoroughly relatable for many of us. And this is the climax, the crux of his story, the pivot point of his narrative. And I'm going to invite you to enter it. The story goes like this. It was, mud, it was read much better for us. I'll give you the cliff notes. Jacob is being pursued by his brother Esau, and he spends a fateful night on the banks of the river Jabbok. And our text tells us that he was involved in a wrestling match with a messenger from God. Whether a human or a deity, it's not really clear. In this wrestling match, Jacob appears to hold his own quite well, even to the point where daylight is quickening, and the stranger says, let me go, Jacob, because I, I, I got to get out of here. I got to go. I got to leave. But Jacob won't stop until this stranger blesses him. And so the stranger asks, what is your name? And then the stranger goes on to rename Jacob. 
And Jacob walks away from this battle with a limp. There's so many things to say about this passage, but I'd like to make a few observations in the form of a sentence that we're going to construct as the morning goes on here. The first part of that sentence is, you have permission to wrestle with God. I give you permission to wrestle with God. Yes, it's true. You can do that. Jacob did it. Why did he wrestle with God? Well, let me give you some context on why Jacob was restless even before God showed up on the banks of the river Jabbok. Jacob has had an entire life full of difficulty and regret that has led him up to this evening. His story began when he was born holding the heel of his twin brother Esau. We read about his dealings with his brother as a young man and his conspiracy with his mother Rebekah to steal Isaac's blessing to Esau as well as his birthright. We follow Jacob as he goes to his uncle Laban's home and he works for 20 years in hiding from his brother Esau. 20 years of hard labor to gain his wives and his children. And we currently find Jacob headed home facing a confrontation with his brother Esau after 20 years of separation. Esau has finally caught up to him. Jacob is afraid. His messenger reports that Esau is going to come and meet with him tomorrow, and he's bringing 400 men with him. So Jacob sends his family along across the river for their safety, and he reaches out. He asks God for help, and he seeks to make some kind of restitution for this thing that he calls life. But in all of these things, Jacob is still resisting. He's holding back. He's largely relying upon himself as he has his entire life. And this is when the wrestling match begins. Notice that Jacob didn't initiate this match. Verse 24 says, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. God is the initiator of this conflict, this all-night wrestling match. Some of you might have noticed that I'm already saying God wrestled with Jacob, and you're wondering why I'm saying that. The text isn't clear who this person is. The text says it's a man. The prophet Hosea later on notes that Jacob wrestles with an angel, but, but I choose to name God as the opponent here. It's clear that no mere man could have the ability to bless and rename as this messenger does, nor is this a night-long wrestling match with a fellow human, because that just wouldn't be that compelling to me. Simple logic tells me that this is a messenger from God sent in Jacob's time of greatest need. I'm not going to belabor this point, but I always tell my confirmation students that I truly believe that Jacob is wrestling with Jesus himself here. I say Jesus is all over the Old Testament, and here's one place where he shows up, because Jesus is the name of God in human form. And I truly believe that this is God in human form. This is a place where Jesus shows up for Jacob at the river Jabbok and he wrestles and he wounds and he renames. And to me, that just seems like things that, something that Jesus might do. Anyways, why did God have to wrestle Jacob? Couldn't he have just talked to him? Or even more interesting, why would any wrestling match between God and any human last for more than like a second? This is God he's wrestling with, right? 
God had the power to mortally disable Jacob at any time. When it began to get light, and God wished to leave, all he had to do was touch his hip socket, and it became dislocated. He could have done that within a second of engaging with Jacob. But I think God stayed locked in battle all night because he needed Jacob to reach the very end of his strength. To finally let God in. Which Jacob does right before sun comes up. I would suggest that this is the only reason that this struggle was even a struggle at all. Because this wrestling was necessary for the growth of Jacob. And I think wrestling is necessary for our growth as well. I find it significant that this wrestling match happens between two struggles in the midst of a life of struggle. Jacob was standing between his past struggles throughout his life and this impending struggle that's coming with his brother Esau, where he had every reason to believe that Esau had designs to kill him and everyone with him. We are constantly in struggles of one kind or another. Some are personal, some are corporate, some are societal, some of them are of our own making, and some have been thrust upon us by others. And we are constantly facing future struggles. Whether we can see them or not, trouble is always on the horizon. So what do we do in the midst of these struggles? We remind ourselves that we have permission to wrestle with God. God comes at exactly this time because he wants Jacob to realize that his real, the real struggles in his life were not about his brothers, mommers, uncle. His struggle all along has been with God. It wasn't his brother. It wasn't his father. It wasn't his uncle. It wasn't his wife or his wandering or his guilt or anything else that he could pin it upon. It's always been with God. A struggle to trust God. A struggle to believe. A struggle to finally and humbly ask for God's blessing. So, you have permission to wrestle with God, but know that you may walk away wounded. Know that you may walk away wounded. Jacob walks away from his wrestling match very much alive, which is a miracle in and of itself, but not without an injury to his hip that caused him to limp. This is my main rebuttal for those who think that this was just a dream or a vision or some sort of metaphysical battle because I've never had a dream where I woke up having an injury afterwards. This seems like a true physical battle to me. Likewise, when we wrestle with God, when we allow him to engage us in that way and wrestle back with him, we aren't likely to walk away unscathed. We will have limps and scars and memories. I have a scar on my right cheek right here. You can't see it from where you are, but you can come closer to me if you want. Let me know if that's what you're looking for. I'm, I don't want to get scared, but I have a small scar right here on my cheek about an inch below my eye. I was in seventh grade, and I had an acrimonious relationship with a boy named Lucas. I couldn't even tell you why uh, it was acrimonious, but it became acrimonious. We always lined up against each other in gym class or would make fun of each other or tease each other on the playground. We didn't get along at all. And it escalated to the point where he snuck up behind me while I was at the drinking fountain. He pushed my face into the water. And the spigot absorbed my cheek. And I walked away with a deep cut and subsequently a scar that's still visible today. I was so mad at the time, for sure. But you know what? Every time I look at that scar in the mirror, 
Throughout my life, I've been reminded of the ways in which unchecked anger and unreconciled relationships end up hurting people and end up hurting me. So in a strange way, I'm actually thankful for my scar. It was actually a pretty small price to pay for the lesson that I've learned that has been helpful throughout my life. It changed me. This is why God does bodily harm to Jacob, I think, because scars remind us of where we've been and what we've learned. It might sound trite, but I warn you, if you truly, honestly wrestle with God, you won't walk away unscathed. Some of you who have really wrestled with God in your lives at different times in your lives know this to be true. Close encounters with God change us fundamentally. And I think that's why we're often afraid to wrestle with him. Because we fear the scars. We fear how we might walk away from that battle. But I'd contend that any scar that God leaves us is well worth it. So, let's finish our sentence. You have permission to wrestle with God, but know that you, will walk away, you may walk away wounded and that you will walk away with a new identity. This is where we get into the question of the text, this question and answer. God, while he has Jacob in a headlock and sunlight is quickening, says, I need to go. Jacob, at his end, finally says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And God responds with a question. What's your name? What is your name? I have a name. It's four letters, L-A-R-S. I've written that combination countless times in my life, and those letters tell you a little bit about me. It tells you about my Swedish heritage and my parents who named me and cared about that heritage. It tells you about my grandmother's family on the Larsen side. My middle name is Eric with a C. It tells you about my great-grandfather, Eric Hawkinson, a former pastor in this church, by the way. Stromberg is a Swedish name that means stream mountain, and that gives you a sense of where my ancestors came from and what I've lived into. All of that form a combination, these simple letters that form sounds, that form a name, that form an identity. Would you look at me different if my name wasn't Lars? What if my name was Steve or Raul or Mohammed? Of course you would look differently at me because I wouldn't be Lars anymore. <laughs> and I am my name. And you were given a name at birth. You've lived with that name. Some of us love our names and cherish them. Some of them are thankful. Some of you are thankful to your parents for your names. Some of us loathe our names, wish our parents had named us something else. Some of us were named after another person's name. Some of us have changed our names when we got married or divorced or we got bored with our old name. Some of you fit your names so perfectly. Others don't seem to fit your name at all. I can't always get your name. Man, it doesn't match the face. We all answer to a name. A series of letters that form gutturals and sibilates and plosives and they make syllables and that name defines us and we're remembered by our names. We have a lot wrapped up in our names. It's our most basic and tangible form of identification, which makes Jacob's answer to this question all the more fascinating because he says, my name's Jacob. But that is not a simple answer. Do you know what Jacob, Yaakov, in Hebrew means? It means supplanter, or more apropos, heel grabber. That was his name. It's like 
if you were named cheater or sneak or problem child. That was essentially his name, and he, and he lived into it, didn't he? This was his life. His early life was marked by stealing and lying and supplanting and grasping for power and blessing. So in answering God's question, Jacob is essentially saying, I'm a screw-up. I've always been a screw-up. This is my identity. This is core to who I am. To add another sabering layer, sobering layer to this question, Jacob's been asked the same question before in this narrative. In the midst of his most despicable deception, Jacob disguises himself as his brother Esau in view of his nearly blind father. And Isaac, his father, asks, what's, what's your name? Who's there? What's your name? And Jacob lies. He says, I'm Esau. He steals the blessing that was not his to have. God's question is so loaded and it taps at the deepest core of Jacob's identity. And Jacob answers it honestly. And that shows me that he is at his very end. He has nothing left other than God. God asked Jacob his name, not because he didn't know it, but because he wanted to know if Jacob really knew it. He wanted to know if Jacob was ready to come to grips with who he really was or whether he was going to continue to be defined by the struggle. This is the point that we all need to arrive at. We need to realize that we are the problem and we need somebody holy and amazing to change us. It is then and only then that we receive our new name just as Jacob did. And in Jacob's case, he was given the name Israel, which means he struggles with God and prevails. Such a better name, isn't it? Than heel grabber. He struggles with God and prevails. His new name was a reminder of the encounter that he had with God and the lesson that he needs God. It becomes the name of the people of God. And by proxy, you and I here today, we are under that name. We are struggling with God and seeking to prevail. And to everyone who believes God gives a new name to us also, we are changed from sinner to saint, from rebel to friend, from enemy to son or daughter. I want to go back to the painting real quickly. What strikes me in this painting is these religious women who are praying in the foreground. I feel myself confused as I view them. On the one hand, it's an amazing depiction of this sublimely spiritual moment that's recorded between Jacob and God. But that is so small. That part of the painting is so small compared to these onlookers, which are so huge. It forces me, forces my eye to deal with the women in the foreground who are disproportionately prominent. And I think that must be intentional on Gauguin's part. When I look at the painting, I feel sad that these women are viewing the struggle, but don't appear to really be engaging in the struggle. They know it's there, but it appears to be merely a vision to them, a metaphor, not something that they feel led to join in on. How about you? Have you come to a point where you're really wrestling with God? Or are you more of a spectator? Are you like Jacob where you spend much of your life knowing of God, believing in God, but not letting him bring you to the end of yourself? Resisting the wrestling match because it's painful or it might expose you or you feel unworthy. How about the struggles of this world? Do you engage with them or are you just an onlooker? Are you a spectator? Do you just turn off the TV when you've had enough? 
If there was ever a week to wrestle with God, I think this is probably a good one. You talk about living in the midst of struggles. I felt that this week. Some of you were here last week to hear Pastor Phil Hilliard from ACBC talk about the realities for our black brothers and sisters in his neighborhood and the need for the church to become a reconciling force. Some of you were moved by his words and some of you felt uh, frustrated by his words. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. But let's remember that here in Hinsdale, most of us have the choice to just turn off the news and put the issues of racial divide or gang violence or extreme poverty behind us. Pastor Phil doesn't have that opportunity. He deserves our prayer and encouragement in the midst of his struggle. We see these things played out so tragically this week in Baton Rouge and Dallas and St. Paul. That one hits home for me. I've been wrestling with a God of justice this week because I, I love the neighborhood where Philando Castile was killed. It was four blocks from where my brother lives. I've driven there countless times, and I'm, I'm so angered by the, the violence and the hatred and the injustice and just the confusion of this week. I wrestle with a God who allows these things to happen. But just like Jacob, when I engage in a wrestling match with God, I realize that it's him I've really been struggling with all along. I can't pin it on the things going on in this world. It's not the violence. It's not the injustice. It's me. G.K. Chesterton was once asked in a letter, what's wrong with the world? He got out a fancy sheet of paper and he wrote, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. When I choose to engage with the struggle going on in and around me, rather than be a spectator, when I wrestle with God, I realize that I'm not wrestling with all these external things. I'm wrestling with him and I'm wrestling with myself. I'm the problem because I'm a sinner. It's sin and darkness that I know too well. But when I limp away from these wrestling matches with God, I'm changed with scars to show for it. I limp away with, from a week like this, as many of us do here in America, hopefully with a new sense of identity. I'm reminded that my primary identity is as a child of God, redeemed and renewed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that that supersedes national pride or the color of my skin or political leanings or where I land on certain issues. I find my identity in the one who graciously engages me in a wrestling match. But this also has to motivate us to action. President of the Covenant Church, Gary Walter, wrote a great response to this week's events. It's kind of small up on here, but I'll read it for you. He ends it by saying, I implore us to prayer, and in your own life, in your church services, and joining together with other churches in your area, intercede specifically for each family of those who have lost loved ones. Pray for the healing of the wounded, for those who weep, whether they weep for the dangers of being a young black man in these disorienting times, or weep for the dangers of being a police officer in these frayed times. Cry out to God and lament for deep cultural fissures and resentments. Pray for our churches in the Twin Cities, Louisiana and Dallas as they seek to be salt and light and remember the hope of Christ. But don't stop at prayer. Resolve to contribute by, to peacemaking. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Children of God. Friends, peacemaking is supposed to be a family trait of the family of God. 
And how does one take halting steps in that endeavor? We cannot even begin without three things. Pursuing engagement, which overcomes isolation. Seeking understanding, which overcomes untested assumptions. And according respect, which overcomes dismissiveness. There's more to peacemaking, but there's not less, regardless of where on a polarized spectrum you begin and the convictions you may hold. So expand your relational circles, be engaged in the social realities of others, ask for eyes to see how as a society we fail each other. Such begins peacemaking. In other words, don't be a spectator. In the struggles of life, don't turn away. Don't pretend it's all okay. Go deeper into them. Head to the riverbank. When God confronts you with the struggles and the strife, greet him with grace and wrestle with him. He is there to bless you, to rename you, to change you forever. One last word of hope for you as I close. Jacob assumed that that night at the river Jabbok was a bridge between the struggles behind and ahead of him. It seemed hopeless. I'm going to die tomorrow. (laughs) But that next morning, what did he find? He found in Esau not death and murder and pain as he expected, but rather reconciliation and restoration and grace. Go read it this week. If he hadn't wrestled with God, I tend to believe that there might have been a different outcome. So accept God in the midst of your struggle, even the struggle that we feel this week, because there is hope come the morning. Yes, you have permission to wrestle. God will not turn you away. Yes, you will walk away with scars, but you will also walk away with a new identity, one that's rooted in the God who never stops pursuing you. May we be known as those who struggle with God and prevail. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for challenging texts, for the way in which this text and the story of Jacob challenges me this week, and I thank you that you are a challenging God. You are not a spectator You come and you engage us. So would you give us the courage to not be spectators in the struggles of this world and this life and in our own hearts as well. That we might engage you in a holy battle so that we might walk away with new meaning and new hope. Lord, would you bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might begin again, I pray in your name. Amen.